some people say they wish they could live in a book. Now I get it, but me personally, there is nothing like film and TV. New worlds, galaxies, unspoken laws and universes to explore. And I love these worlds. I want to go for a walk through Mordor with Frodo. I want to see time and space with Spock. I want to drive a car into a battlefield with Optimus Prime. I am obsessed. I rewatch and track the hidden messages, Easter eggs, and theories that come from these amazing franchises. So sit back, grab your popcorn, and let me take you through the finer details of these incredible stories. I'm T, and welcome to Theories by T. Once upon a time, superheroes were defined by their long flowing capes, the ability to fly, shoot lasers from their eyes, and stand taller than the average man like gods. And then along came a spider. Hello everyone, I'm T and welcome to Theories by T in partnership with Sky Cinema, where we'll be taking a look back at some of the greatest film franchises in all of Hollywood and discuss what made them so iconic. I thought our first episode had to be the franchise that would basically frame the man I'd grow up to be, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. In this episode, we're going to take a look back at the iconic scenes, filming process, and hidden easter eggs across each movie which you might have missed. So what are we waiting for? Let's rewind back to the 2000s and discuss the iconic trilogy that is Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. So the first Spidey movie followed Peter Parker, a boy bitten by a radioactive spider that gave him superhuman abilities. After initially using his powers for his own personal gain, his negligence to use them for good led to the death of his guardian, Uncle Ben, whose words would echo in his mind forever, with great power must also come great responsibility. And from then on, he'd fight crime as Spider-Man. I think what made the first movie so iconic was that at the time, superhero media was defined by older guys with huge muscles and powers that basically made them gods. As a shy, nerdy kid in school, I watched Peter Parker as a much more accessible hero. He was the normal guy. I could be Spider-Man, bar the radioactive spider bite and superpowers. He was cool. He was fun. He was the hero for the kids. And yes, he had powers, but it was things that made you think you could do it too. And its message was clear. If you have the ability to do the right thing, do it. Now, of course, it also had some iconic scenes. Too many to fit into one episode, but I'm going to rank the top three most iconic scenes from the movie. Feel free to agree or disagree. So number three for me, I've got Peter versus Flash Thompson. There's so much to break down in this scene, in particular that use of slow motion. I don't think the spider sense has been replicated that way on screen since. When Peter activates the spider sense and everything freezes and the camera glides through the air while we're seeing all of the corridor, in particular seeing that spitball flying through the air. The scene also featured an early acting role from the now super widely famous Joe Manganiello as Flash Thompson. Apparently in the scene where he was supposed to punch Peter Parker in the face and miss, as we see on screen, he was paid $100 by someone in the crew to actually not miss and clock him. He didn't take it, of course, and it's unclear whether they meant this as a prank or not, but there were rumors at the time that Tobey Maguire was really hard to work with, so maybe this was just a really dark prank. Also, side note, who looked at Joe Manganiello and said, yeah, that's a high school teenager? Number two, I'm giving it to Uncle Ben's speech and death and Peter subsequently hunting for the killer. 
Uncle Ben's death goes down as one of the most important moments in Spider-Man's history in the comics, going way back to his 1960s origin. But this scene is the one that made the Great Responsibility line so iconic and one of the most important superhero quotes of all time. The guilt that Peter feels here for not stopping the robber, the pain in Toby's face, and that scene where he's swinging through the city hunting the killer was haunting and badass. Danny Elfman's heroic score brought down deeper in tone to match with Peter's descent into revenge. Honestly, I forgot how dark that scene actually was. This teenager was out for blood and his guilt admittedly did stop him from actually killing the guy himself, but he did break his arm and watch him fall to his death. This was not a heroic moment for Peter. This was his rock bottom and one that he still carries with him in his most recent appearance in Spider-Man No Way Home as he's so determined to stop the MCU Peter from following that same path of revenge. Before giving my number one, I need to give some honourable mentions. One to Peter practising flipping his web off the top of the rooftops. Honestly, who didn't run around school just doing the hand thing, hoping that webs would shoot out of your wrist. In that same scene, he mentions Up Up and Away and Shazam, which were nice references to DC characters Superman and the then known Captain Marvel, now known Shazam. Confusing, complicated story for another day, trust me. And that's one of the few references to DC characters actually being fictional characters within the Raimi trilogy, as if DC Comics exists in that universe. There's also that Goblin versus Peter fight in the burning building. Honestly, I love this scene for the little Matrix dodge alone. At the time, the Matrix bullet time thing was very new, so seeing that to me was like peak cinema. Then there's the scene of the New Yorkers helping Spider-Man fight Goblin. I just love this scene because it was a nice patriotic moment, some New York pride. Actually, I believe this scene was added later in the production process because during filming, America experienced the tragedy of 9-11. It's said that this scene was added late to give the film a more inspired and hopeful American message. Actually, if you look at the trailer of the film, you can see that there was a scene where Spider-Man webs up some helicopters between the Twin Towers that was later removed after everything happened. And that final swing through New York to Danny Elfman's score was incredible. And again, him swinging past the American flag, highlighting that patriotic symbolism. But for me, the most iconic scene in the entire film had to be Spider-Man versus Green Goblin in their final battle. The action in the scene was brutal. Every attack felt like it hurt. It was a great depiction of two men with insane strength coming to blows. The scene really utilizes Sam Raimi's horror experience. Everything is dark and haunting. The grotesque grenade to the face in slow motion was brutal. And honestly, shout out to the makeup and costume design team here because the face was bleeding, it was torn up. It was horrifying to actually look at. Stunt choreography in this scene was sick. The way Peter tries to swing away, but Goblin just whacks him down. The sound effects with every hit was lethal. Another sound detail I liked was the webs having this very metallic and wiry sound, highlighting just how strong they were. Actually, the scientist at the start of the movie does say that the web strength is like that of metal. So this was a nice reference to that. And I love how much of a parallel this scene was to the one of Peter hunting Uncle Ben's killer because Peter is similarly fighting with some level of revenge in his heart here after this guy came for Aunt May and MJ, but notice how he stops when he sees that the goblin was actually Norman. The way I read this scene was that Peter saw another father figure on the brink of death and it reminded him of Uncle Ben and knew the responsible thing to do was to hold back. Until Norman tries to trick him but impels himself on his own glider, the direct callback to his death in the comics by the way, Amazing Spider-Man 122. 
Okay, now for some behind the scenes facts and Easter eggs that you may or may not have known about Spider-Man 1. Spider-Man was among the first few movies that saved Marvel from bankruptcy. See, in the 90s, Marvel Comics were simply not bringing in the cash and it was going to take more than some cartoons to save it. So Marvel pulled a Hail Mary, selling their popular characters to major movie studios and hope for the best. First came Blade in 1998, followed shortly after with X-Men in 2000 and Spider-Man and it was thanks to the advent of CGI at the time that superheroes were able to be portrayed on screen in a way that looked cool and almost realistically, which made all of those heroes go down in history as the movies that put Marvel back on the map. Another fact, originally Freddie Prince Jr was the studio's main choice for Spider-Man. He was a Hollywood cute innocent boy at the time, instead they did go with Toby but now you know that there is an alternate universe out there where Fred from Scooby Doo plays Spider-Man. Toby put in a lot of work for this role, it took 5 months to film with 5 months of prep work including physical activity for Toby to put on size. He tells Howard Stern that for 5 months he would train 6 times a week for up to 4 hours a day. He had a nutritionist and would eat up to 4-6 to six meals a day and that may seem like a lot now but honestly with the state of Hollywood and superhero movies, guys like Hugh Jackman, Michael B. Jordan and Henry Cavill were putting away thousands of calories a day for their roles, 2 gallons of water and training twice or even 3 times per day. I mean they do look great but my personal unprofessional opinion is that just can't be healthy man, I mean if nothing else for the mental toll that it would take would just be crazy or maybe I'm just jealous, I don't know. Toby has said that he was Sam Raimi's main pick for the role but the studio just wasn't on board so Sam and Toby went off together to film scenes just for the studio to convince them that he's the man for the part which did hurt the man's ego just a little bit. What finally sold them was when they asked him to do an action test which is available on YouTube right now and he's like shirtless and oiled up doing his best Bruce Lee impression being up some thugs and that is what got him the role. Peter catching the food on the tray and catching MJ, that was no CGI. VFX artist John Dixstra said on the director's commentary that that scene took over 156 takes, although his intonation did make it sound like he was exaggerating. I don't think it was exactly 150 plus, but some of these outlets just love a clickbait headline. But the scene was actually done by gluing Tobey Maguire's hand on the food tray and then with some other food items already stuck to the plates, Toby just needed to smoothly catch it. And if you slow down on that footage, you'll see that the jelly actually bounces back on top of the milk carton because of the magnets that's laced inside of it. And then altogether, this wound up being something like a 16-hour workday. That ever-famous upside-down Spider-Man kiss scene was always intended to be massive well from pre-production. Sam Raimi literally gave Kirsten Dunst a scrapbook of amazing Hollywood kisses to study before this scene just so it could be perfect, which is crazy. J.K. Simmons found out he originally got the role as J. Jonah Jameson when auditioning for a voiceover job at Grey's Advertising. In an interview, he explains that he was walking through an office and some kid, probably around 28, comes over to him and says, Oh my god, J.K., congratulations. And J.K. goes, Thank you, for what? And the kid goes, Are you kidding me? It's Spider-Man, you're J. Jonah Jameson, that's so cool. Yeah, J.K. Simmons found out he got the part from a kid that was just connected to internet fan sites and had the news on Spider-Man before he did. So when his agent called him up to say that he got the job later that evening, he was like, Yeah, I already know. Willem Dafoe did 90% of his stunts and apparently wanted the military look of Goblin because Oscorp in this version of the universe was a weapons design company for the military. The creative team added a subtle detail giving Willem these fake straight teeth while he was Norman but when the Goblin took over they'd remove them to create more of a transition into the more monstrous look of the Goblin highlighting his natural sharper canines. 
That car conversation between Uncle Ben and Pete takes place in an Oldsmobile Delta 88. Not only is this a gorgeous car, but it actually belongs to Sam Raimi himself and has appeared in a number of his films before, including The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Darkman, Army of Darkness, Drag Me to Hell, and most recently in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And the final fun fact comes from that scene where the spider bites Peter at the beginning of the film. That spider actually had to be hand-painted red and blue and carefully lowered by an expert as it was literally venomous. Can you imagine being the guy that had to manage that and make sure Toby didn't get bitten? Well, I thought it'd be fun to track him down, so here he is. My name is Stephen Kutcher. I'm an entomologist and the bug man of Hollywood. I've worked on over 100 feature films, films like Jurassic Park, Arachnophobia, Spider-Man, I get called in to be a bug wrangler, somebody who does the bugs in the movies. I was called in on Spider-Man 1 by Sam Raimi, who wanted to have a spider web down on Peter Parker, the character Peter Parker, and bite him. And I knew how to make this scene happen. And I happened to use a fan brush. I'm also an artist. So I happened to use a fan brush as my tool. And I knew that I could make a spider walk to the edge of the fan brush and then web down onto Tobey Maguire's hand. So we had to pick a spider. We had to make sure the spider would not bite Tobey Maguire. We had to make sure that the spider was different. So I suggested making it Spider-Man colors, red and blue. The plan was to paint the spider. So we had to figure out how to paint a spider. And it didn't hurt the spiders. The outside of an arachnid is covered with wax. And we used acrylics and the acrylics peeled off and then the spiders looked like they did originally, which I'm sure in Spiderland was kind of a disappointment. And once we got that worked out, they had an excellent painter. His name was John Schnabel. And he could paint the design of Spider-Man in 20 minutes. So then we had a whole series of spiders that were painted. And my assistant, Michelle Pollack, would pick out the best spiders because she knew how to web the spider down. And then I was up on a ladder about six feet above the ground, and I would slowly lower the spider until it could hit his hand. And I could see that Toby Maguire was a little apprehensive. I said, you know, I have handled this spider. It has never bitten me. It's related to a black widow, but I know that the venom is not as toxic as the black widow's venom. Uh, <laughs> Toby Maguire's eyes kind of opened up. I said, I just want you to know that I'm not taking responsibility for this and somebody has to take responsibility. And Sam Raimi stepped up because he had a lot of confidence in me. And I had a lot of confidence in myself. I was just being honest. And Sam said, I'll take responsibility. And then, then the show was on. Jen Schnabel was painting the spiders. He was handing them to Michelle. Michelle was sorting the spiders. She was handing me up on a six foot ladder. I was dropping it down on his hand, and that's how we got the shot of the spider landing. Man, 
and Spider-Man 1. Okay, some elements didn't age the best. MJ wasn't my favorite. She was really written just as a love interest and damsel in distress. And maybe some CGI wasn't incredible, but at the time it was known as pretty good. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think it cracks my top three of Spider-Man movies of all time, but iconic is the most suitable word for it. Overall, I feel the original Spider-Man was an incredibly important piece of cinema as it heralded in a new era of superhero films. Now you can take comic books and turn them into these entertaining epic adventures that fans can latch onto. And thanks to these early 2000s hits, people could say what hadn't been uttered since Michael Keaton's Batman. Superhero movies were cool again. Spider-Man 2 drops in 2004. I remember vividly seeing this film in cinemas and it was awesome. Spider-Man's dealing with a new threat in Dr. Octopus, but he's tired of his heroics affecting his personal life. He wants the girl, he wants the life, but he just can't have it all. It was a great story about Peter growing up and learning even if he tries to shirk his responsibilities, the consequences will always find him. It built a dark revenge story with Harry seeking revenge for his father. It was incredibly dramatic and almost had this noir undertone with that subplot. And we can't forget the iconic superhero action between Spider-Man and Doc Ock. Once again, they pushed the boundaries of CGI with those extended fights, which we'll get into in a bit. Alfred Molina came in as a great villain, a dark side of him causing his obsession to complete his work. It actually was a super interesting Jekyll and Hyde story, and with him being Peter's mentor turned enemy, it was particularly heartbreaking. I think this, above all, really showed Peter an important lesson to being a hero that fundamentally requires sacrifice. Be that work, love, family, or friendship, if Spidey was gonna have it all, it was gonna come with a lot of pain. Ranking the iconic scenes in this one, let's get straight into it. I'll give my number three to the surgery scene. It did give me nightmares, but man, it was crazy. Like to have that in a movie with such a young target audience is kind of nuts. Understand Sam Raimi is at his core a horror director. So whenever there's a chance for him to go dark, he really takes it. And that scene felt like it was ripped right out from The Evil Dead. Number two, I'll give to Peter delivering the pizza. Nowhere near as scary as number three, but I just love a scene where a hero is just having fun with his powers. Going from the scooter to being delayed by swinging around and saving lives, but still trying to get the job done. We see that kind of thing now in other superhero installments, even as recently as Across the Spider-Verse. Actually, this is another scene that highlights the same theme I mentioned earlier, that Spider-Man had to realize that he can't have everything. Something had to give. And number one has to go to Spider-Man versus Doc Ock. I mean, there was going to be no other scene, but number one was there. This fight has gone down in history as one of the greatest superhero battles in all of cinema. I love the fluidity of the fight, how acrobatic Spider-Man gets to be here. In his fight with Goblin in the first movie, it was very much a man versus man kind of wrestling match. But here, it was actually Spider-Man in the ring. Not to mention the added tension of protecting the civilians and stopping the train at the same time. There's even deleted scenes online of Peter just wailing on Doc Ock even more. Which though does beg the question, how is Ock surviving these hits? He's not got super strength and Peter is strong enough to punch through brick walls. So he's either holding back a lot or they kind of just didn't realize this in the continuity. Mind you, he does hold back a lot in the comics. So maybe someone in the writer's room was just trying to make it really comic accurate. 
For casting, near everyone comes back from the first film, but I love that they included Alfred Molina. Again, I feel like these movies were just geniuses at getting actors that you wouldn't expect for these amazing roles. Like, who should we get to play the evil octopus man? Hmm, the guy from Chocolat. Octavius was a brilliant character, carrying over this paternal energy to Peter, not dissimilar to Uncle Ben, and then descending into the dark side due to his obsession and tragic accident. It was a battle between his ego as a scientist determined to change the world and his care as a gentle man who was just in over his head, all of which carried beautifully by Molina. Now some more behind the scenes fun facts and easter eggs from Spider-Man 2. There was so much more CGI used in this film than the first. In fact, it actually picked up an award for best visual effects at the Oscars. One of the biggest CGI scenes was of course the one I just mentioned, the fight on top of the train, which is surprising as I was convinced that it was all performed by actors, but no, all CGI, mind blown. But I mean, in fairness, I was eight at the time. Another great example of the incredible CGI was in Doc Ock's death scene. According to VFX artist Antalila Molinara, they took a scan of Alfred Molina's body and recreated it digitally for the film, slowly drifting him through the water so it looked believable. There were several allusions to Spider-Man comics in this film, but the most iconic one to this day was Peter ditching his suit in the garbage and then walking away. This was a parallel to the Spider-Man No More comic run, due to getting no respect no matter how many lives he saved. This moment in the comics was so significant, it was even referenced in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse as a canon event, something that happens to near all Spider-Men at some point in their lives. Now we all know that Jake Gyllenhaal joined the MCU in Tom Holland's Spider-Man Far From Home, but apparently he nearly made his Spider-Man film debut many years before, cast to replace Tobey Maguire in Sam Raimi's 2004 follow-up. The future Oscar nominee was considered to play Spider-Man when Tobey Maguire's chances of reprising the role in Spider-Man 2 were threatened to a back injury. He hurt his back pretty badly on the set of 2003's Seabiscuit. According to newspapers, medical experts feared that Maguire might end up paralyzed. Thankfully, he pulled through and managed to star in the acclaimed sequel. In fact, coincidentally, it contains a scene where Peter does injure his back. A lot of people think that was an easter egg to Maguire's injury, but no, that was originally always in the script. And that back scene was also referenced many years later in Spider-Man No Way Home, when Andrew Garfield helps crack Tobey Maguire's back. The phone number on the sticker of Peter Parker's helmet from his pizza job is the real phone number for Joe's Pizza in New York, which mentions the address on Bleecker Street, the same street where the Sanctum Santorum is located, residence of Doctor Strange. Also, in a Daily Bugle scene, J. Jonah Jameson references that Doctor Strange is a name already taken in-universe when discussing possible headline titles for Doc Ock, meaning that in this film universe, Doctor Strange must exist. More than a bit ironic now, as Sam Raimi has directed Doctor Strange 2 for the MCU. Spider-Man 2 is easily one of the greatest Spider-Man films or even superhero films ever made. A perfect example of a superhero struggling with his human life and his hero life and sacrifices that one has to make to do the right thing. I also think this film was a great exploration of Peter's mental health. That line, with great power comes great responsibility, actually comes with a lot of pressure on Peter. He carries the weight of the world on his back and thinks he has to be responsible for stopping every bad thing from happening in his life. A lesson he learns is that he simply can't do it all. And by putting down the hero life for a bit, he was able to help Aunt May, reconnect with MJ, catch up on his studies, his work, 
Now the hero life did come knocking whether he wanted it to or not, but him losing his powers was essentially burnout. And once he got his head right, the power came back and he did what he needed to do. Spider-Man, ladies and gentlemen, strong in the body and in the mind. Now the third and final, Spider-Man 3. Okay, this is where things get divisive. The third installment of Sam Raimi's iconic trilogy follows Peter dealing with an alien parasite known as a symbiote that clings to its host and enhances their darkest sides. Now the reason I say it's divisive is because it has a lot going on. The Sandman's causing trouble, the black suit, Venom, Harry's goblin, the Harry and Spidey team up, Peter and MJ's relationship is on the rocks. But now if you say the exact same thing with a different inflection, the Sandman is causing trouble, the black suit, Venom, Harry's the goblin, Harry and Spidey team up, Peter and MJ's relationships on the rocks, you realize that the film's got a lot going on, maybe a little too much. I'm actually gonna discuss where I think things went wrong in this film later, but I don't wanna spend time just ripping into the film because honestly, when this film came out and I was like 11, I did adore it. I thought it was cool as heck, a lot of back-to-back -back action, characters that I've been reading in the comics forever and seeing in cartoons were finally on the big screen and I ate it up. Instead of just talking iconic scenes, I'm also going to talk about the worst scene in the film too, just for fun, because I think even the bad scenes are a part of what makes this trilogy so iconic. So let's talk about the good, the bad and the ugly of Spider-Man 3. Firstly, the good. The top three best moments in the film. Number three, I've got Peter versus Harry at the start of the film. Look, the VFX in some areas looked odd, but come on now, it was still so good. Heroes fighting in their everyday clothes is always iconic, but then couple that with swinging through the city, using the environment as a part of the fight, and all the while protecting Aunt May's ring, that was pretty cool. For number two, I've got Peter using the church bell to remove the symbiote from his body. I think it was just an awesome visual representation of him cleansing the evil and sin off of him under God. And then it's slowly seeking Eddie below. Tobey Maguire nailed that scene so well. Also a nod to the comic books too. And it played into the line earlier where Peter says to Eddie, you want forgiveness, get religion. I just love that thanks to his own Christian aunt raising him, he literally sought religion to free himself. And number one doesn't involve Spider-Man at all, but rather Sandman, it's his transformation scene. The entire story of Flint Marco being a misunderstood criminal and wanting to be with his daughter, stumbling into the test site that honestly should have had a lot more security, all of that was great. But then the visuals of every grain of sand forming into him, this was regarded as a huge high for VFX at the time. And applying it with the tragic story of reuniting with his daughter, trying to hold the picture of her, it was incredible. Whether it's story, tension, or technical prowess alone, that scene deserves a lot of praise. But now for the bad. Okay, I could nitpick at Peter pulling down his fringe to seem more evil, the cluster of villains and random plot lines, or anything related to Topher Grace as a Venom. But no, I'll just zero into what I know is regarded as the worst, but still most iconic, the strut. Peter is taken over by the symbiote and turns into this overconfident emo dude, finger gunning and dancing down the street. It was cringy. It was painful. It was a lot. A moment so cringy and meme-worthy, it even got referenced years later in Into the Spider-Verse. But I have to give Sam Raimi some credit because that cringe felt almost intentional. 
think about it, PR is a nerd. Heightened confidence won't make him likeable, it just heightens his own perception of what he thinks is cool. He would lean into this toxic, hyper-masculinity, edgy, bad boy because those were the guys in school that he considered cool. Peter doesn't have social awareness like that, he's not like Harry, and yeah, if we're being honest, even the nerdy kids in school do have this toxic perception of what being a man is in this world and don't realise that it's different until they get older, misogyny included. That cringe, that sheer uncomfortable nature of that scene is right in Sam Raimi's wheelhouse. It's horror, and you may hate it, but look at how the other characters on the street react to him. I truly think that that cringe is exactly what was intended. And for the final time, let's talk behind the scene fun facts and Easter eggs. MJ sings Irving Berlin's They Say It's Wonderful during her play, which Peter is singing along to in the audience. They say that falling in love is wonderful. Which is very ironic as he didn't realize that the lyrics actually describe idealizing the concept of love without having experienced it themselves. It's wonderful, so they say. During the performance of MJ's play, Peter tells her that the applause was loud and geeks out about the acoustics and diffusion, keeping sound waves grouping and propagating and all of that sciencey stuff. Well, ever the scientist, that exact same concept is how he winds up defeating Venom at the end, trapping him in a circle of sound bouncing back inwards. As Spider-Man swings through the parade, we hear an orchestral version of the Spider-Man 60s theme song that was actually played by a busker in the first Spider-Man movie. Bryce Dallas Howard here plays Gwen Stacy, love interest in the Amazing Spider-Man films, destined to die at the hands of the Goblin. Peter saving her from a fall here was a subtle reference to that. A fourth Spider-Man film was planned following this one, set to have Mysterio as the main villain, played by Bruce Campbell, who had cameos in all three Spider-Man films as well as most films in Sam Raimi's career. But this was canned and they reset with the Amazing Spider-Man instead. Now, if you know me, you know I could go on and on about how there was a huge push for Donald Glover to star in this instead of Andrew Garfield and his impact on the Spider-Verse entirely, but that's a story for another day. J.K. Simmons apparently was heartbroken about the franchise's ending, but fortunately for him, it looks like he remains a constant in the Spidey movies, reprising his role throughout the Spider-Verse in Spider-Man Far From Home, No Way Home, and in the Lego universe and across the Spider-Verse, as well as Gwen Stacy's universe. Sam Raimi has since looked back on Spider-Man 3 and admits that it didn't work well in an interview on the Nerdist podcast. He also didn't love all of the characters in this film, though he didn't say who, rumour has it that it was Venom. He said original plans for the film included Vulture and Lizard, but studios had him lean into Venom. And on paper, a fair choice. Venom and Black Suit Spider-Man were fan favourite details in the comics and cartoons. But that leads into one of the main reasons this movie wasn't highly received, which I'm going to get into right now, toys and studio interference. As much as superhero movies are made for fans of action and drama and an awesome form of escapism, a lot of the time people suggest that studios put massive importance on how merchandisable they can make a character. Look at how many Iron Man suits there are now. How many Marvel movies have you seen where they wear the same suits in every movie? Whether it was Spider-Man 3, Fantastic Four or X-Men 3, they all operated under the idea of more characters means more toy sales. In my opinion, it seemed like the black suit Spider-Man toy just needed to be sold. Sandman, the new Goblin. I believe this film basically is what happens when studios prioritise profit over quality. For me, the story felt rushed, chopped and changed and void of heart because I don't think the studios really cared about that. And you could say similar issues surrounded the Schumacher Batman films, and arguably superhero films to this date. 
edited and rushed, forced to make more and more with shorter time gaps, thus leading to lackluster visuals, odd editing choices, and more. As an 11 year old, yes, I was obsessed, and Spider-Man 3 actually did really well in the box office for that very reason. But ultimately, it aged poorly because I think that artistic intent and care was being shoved out by corporate hunger. Spider-Man 3 may have left a somewhat sour taste by the end of this trilogy, but it doesn't make it any less iconic overall. Its action set pieces are still awesome and had some of the best VFX in Hollywood at the time. I enjoyed it and look back fondly, it's just hard not to see the flaws along with it. The franchise for me, for its highs and its lows, still goes down as a landmark in cinema. It was among the turning of the tides for superheroes in film, experimented with technical elements that were totally new to cinema, and gave nerdy kids like me a whole universe to escape into and enrich our love of this iconic character. Spider-Man represents sacrifice, heroism, and smiling in the face of adversity. A man you could aspire to be like and a bona fide badass in every sense. And these things couldn't have been made more iconic without this spectacular franchise. And that's all for this one, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Theories by T podcast in partnership with Sky Cinema. Which reminds me, if you want to watch any of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, you can find all three on Sky Cinema, as well as the other Spider-Man movies, Amazing Spider-Man's 1 and 2, and the MCU's Spider-Man Homecoming, Far From Home, and No Way Home. So make sure to head over to Sky Cinema if you're looking to relive your favorite films just like I have. I'm so excited to crack into even more iconic movie franchises from superhero to animation and beyond. I always do deep breakdowns like this on TikTok, but now I get to do it in a whole comprehensive long format, which is amazing. Make sure to like, comment, and leave us a review if you enjoyed the episode. Come back next time for a deep dive into another iconic hero on the big screen, Batman, as I explore what made the Dark Knight trilogy so iconic. Thanks for listening, and that's the tea.